0: As they're going to Children's Church, why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles. And turn into the Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand this morning. We will bring one to you if you need one. In your Bibles, turn to the book of Kings, 2 Kings. 2 Kings, chapter 3. Second Kings, chapter three. As you're turning there, I saw this incredible story. And uh, I don't know how this guy did it. He ran a marathon, okay, 26.2 miles. If you ever ran a marathon, raise your hand. I wanna see our marathon runners in here. Hats off to you. I knew we had a couple for sure. Yeah, you're just sort of raising your fingers. Don't be embarrassed. We got, some, we got at least three of them in here for sure, if not more. You've run your marathons. Some of you run half marathons. If You run 5Ks, 10Ks. If you run anything then further around your house, to the bathroom, whatever, you, hats off to you, okay? You're incredible. You're athletes, and don't be ashamed of that, okay? Well, this Florida man, his name is Joe Salter. He didn't only run a marathon. He ran a marathon backwards. Can you imagine that? 26.2 miles. Some of us are like, you're just nervous to take two steps backwards, right? 26.2 miles backwards, I'm not done yet, while juggling. It says the world record juggler, as he's called, and mental health counselor learned to juggle from his father. And he's even done this um, on triathlons too. If you don't know what a triathlon is, you swim, you bike, and you run. So he did the backstroke while juggling. I don't know how he did it. I'm just reading what the world record said and then biked and juggled and then ran and juggled doing a triathlon. Isn't that incredible. There are some people out there that do some incredible things. And when I was reading about Joel Salter, I'm sitting there going, how does he do that? I mean, how can anybody do that? I mean, to me that just seems ridiculous, right? I, have you ever read through the Bible and you read a story and you say that's just incredible, that's ridiculous? Oh, that's in the Bible. Only back in the Bible times did people do really crazy, fantastic stuff. That kind of stuff doesn't happen today. I'm sorry, but 26.2 miles running backward and juggling. Okay, maybe that's not a spiritual thing, but that's still pretty incredible. There's a lot of incredible things that are happening around us. And uh, I don't know about you, but when I open up the Bible and I read some of these things, I always sit there and say, I don't know, it's a little hard to believe. I'm going to tell you this. It is believable because we still see things happening today whether it's spiritual or not, incredible things happen. More incredible things are going to happen. honestly believe that. Last week, we established the beginning of a new series focused on faith. And I gave you two points. First point was this. I don't have to fully understand to obey immediately. I don't have to fully understand to obey immediately. And the second thing was those who God used the most are those who hold on to the least. Those are the two things we said last week. That came from the, the story of Elisha when he first got called by Elijah. If you remember the famous bumper sticker that I'm not going to make, "Burn the plow, kill the cow." Okay. Again, if you did not listen to last week's sermon, go to the podcast. Let's you know make more sense, or just go read First Kings chapter, uh, I believe it's 20 or 21. Um, go back and read that. Because okay, that's what Elisha did. Now we're going to fast forward into Elisha's life. A few things have happened in his life. Uh, a few incredible stories. But before we dig into God's Word, uh, I want to—I saw this quote and I want to share it with you. A great need can be a good thing if it leads you to a deeper dependency on God. Now listen carefully to this. Okay? A great need can be a good thing if it leads you to a deeper dependency dependency on God. Define now what great need is in your life. Okay. It could be a struggle. It could be something positive. It could be something negative. I'll throw out one for our church right now. The capital campaign. Okay, We said regardless of the vote, we're moving forward with the capital campaign. Our goal is to raise a million dollars. A million dollars, our church, we can do that? Yeah, yeah, we can. We can. That seems like a great need, doesn't it? Think about this. A great need can be a good thing if it leads you to a deeper dependency on God. Is a capital campaign going to draw you closer to God? It better. Because we've got to be fully dependent on God to do something remarkable like that. That's a God thing. And it can be done. The problem here is not knowing how to dream big, but sometimes it's how to start small. I think we can all dream big, but where do we go now? How do we take those first steps now and going forward? And this incredible challenge, uh, we need to consider that maybe God doesn't want me, listen, God doesn't want me to use Him to meet my needs. Listen carefully this. God doesn't want me to use Him to meet my needs. He wants to use my needs to bring me to Him. He wants to use my needs to bring me to Him. Sometimes you get that a little confused, right? That's where we're going today in Scripture. That's what we're going to focus on. I believe there's great needs out there. Those things bring us to God. And it's not about God, come help me out. It's they bring me to Him, to depend on Him, to draw stronger my faith with Him. So we're going to go to the book of 2 Kings chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 9. Chapter 3, verse 9. The king of Edom and his troops joined them. And all three armies traveled along a roundabout route through the wilderness for seven days. But there was no water for the men or their pack animals. Well, what should we do? The king of Israel cried out. The Lord has brought the three of us here to let the king of Moab defeat us? Now, in this story, three kings have come together. They believe of Israel and Judah and Edom. They've come together here to go fight the king of Moab. They believe God's called them to unite to be victorious. So they've traveled now on this journey to go meet the king of Moab, and as they've traveled across the desert, across the wilderness, it's been seven days they are out of water. A little thirsty. They're pack animals, their cattle, their horses, their donkeys. all the animals that they had that brought with them that carry soldiers that carry their supplies, no water for them. A little desperate situation here. Wouldn't you agree? So what do you do? Well, repeat after me. God is not my shortcut. Try it again. God is not my shortcut. God is my solution. I remember that. God is our solution. He's not our shortcut. If I can go to God to get here, if I can go to God to get to this, I'm done. No, no, no. God is your solution. Period. Okay? The combined armies of Judah and Israel had to travel this considerable distance to attack Moab from the south. And you know, they're here seven days, and now the King Jerome, his guilty conscience sort of hits him. He sort of sits there and think, okay, what did I do wrong? What calamity, what, what sin have I committed to bring the judgment of God on us that we have no water? Right? My own sin brought this upon me. I did something wrong, right? We often do that, don't we? In times when something goes wrong in our life, we sit there and say, it's because I sinned against God. God's punishing me. Sometimes that might be true, but sometimes bad things happen to us. Because why? Because we live in a sinful world where bad things happen. Sometimes our choices bring about our consequences. Sometimes the choices of somebody else bring about our consequences upon us. In this situation, the king saying, it must be my fault. Maybe I did something wrong. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, But King Jehoshaphat of Judah asked, Is there no prophet of the Lord with us? If there is, we can ask the Lord what to do. And one of King Jeram's officers replied, Elisha, son of Shaphath, is here. He used to be Elijah's personal assistant. Verse 12, Jehoshaphat said, Then the Lord will speak through him. So the kings of Israel and Judah and Edom went to consult with Elisha. Now, Both Jerome and Jehoshaphat believed that there was a spiritual, divine uh, element to their current crisis. If we can just go to God and figure this out, maybe this will help. Maybe he's our solution. But Jerome believed that God was to be avoided because of the crisis, and Jehoshaphat believed that God was to be sought out because of the crisis. So a little difference of opinion here, okay? But in this version, Elijah I'm sorry, Elisha is called Elijah's personal insistent. Now, if some of you have a different translation, that reads, which is poured water on the hands of Elijah. Okay? Which, referring to Elisha, poured water on the hands of Elijah. In other words, it's a wonderful title for a servant of God. Elisha was the humble servant practical servant of Elijah. He poured the water over the hands of Elijah and took care of him. He was a humble servant. And so when they talked about it, you know, they came to him. He says, this is who I am. Now, this spiritual service really mattered. A lot of us, you know, we think, well, what, what can I do just by serving others? You know what you do when you serve others? You serve God. When you serve others, you are serving God. You serve God by serving others. It's a beautiful picture here of how Elisha is described. Let's read on. So it says, so the kings of, I'm sorry, I said read on. Let's go back to what we just read. It said, the kings of Israel, Judah, and Edom went to consult with Elisha. Now, normally, you think about this, kings demand people to come to them, right? But in this situation, the three kings are seeking out Elisha. That's unheard of. It shouldn't be that way. But that's called humility. On their part, they were actually humble. Maybe they're desperate. I don't know. But for sure, they were humble enough to come to Elisha and ask for help. Now let's read on to verse 13. Verse 13 says, I want no part of you, Elisha said to the king of Israel. "Oh, Here, here they humbly come. and This is what he says. I want no part of you. Why don't you go to the pagan prophets of your fathers and mothers? But King Jerome said, no. For it was the Lord who called us three kings here to be destroyed by the king of Moab. Isn't that a positive answer? No, no, no. God called us here to be destroyed by Moab. So we want to talk to you. Sort of a defeated attitude, wouldn't you say? Verse 14 Elisha replied, As surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I would not bother with you, except for my respect for King Jehoshaphat of Judah. Now bring me someone who can play the harp. While the harp was being played, the power of the Lord. Came upon Elisha. So why are you coming here? Why don't you just go to your pagan fathers and mothers? You no, know? go to the other gods that you worship. I love the boldness of Elisha. He calls him out. Oh, oh now you're showing up to talk to me? Oh now you're showing up to talk to God? Why don't you just go back and worship all the other idols you've been worshiping all along? Why are you showing up now? All right? He starts off this conversation reminding them that, hey, you know what, the kings, you're following the orders of a different god. Okay, This is the God that I follow in his marching orders. These are the false gods you've been following. We've got different gods here. I've got the true one. You've got the false ones. So if you're coming to me, you better be prepared for the answer from the true God. Okay. He goes on to say, I wouldn't even bother you except for my uh, respect for King Jehoshaphat from Judah. It wasn't that Elisha was against every king or powerful person. He's willing to speak to these kings for the sake of Jehoshaphat because he was a godly king of Judah. He said, now bring me a harp. So in comes this musician. I told the worship team, I said, I'm going to mention you guys this morning because it's important. Because music is powerful. Music is so powerful. When Elisha wanted to be sensitive to the leading of God, he wanted to hear what God was going to say. And speaking of the Holy Spirit, he asked for a musician and he brought him in. And to demonstrate the great spiritual power that comes along with music. Worship is important. Worship in song. We worship in reading. We worship in prayer. We worship in song. We worship in truth. We worship in multiple ways. Worship through music is important. Never underestimate the power of worshiping music. If you don't know the songs, that's okay. Mumble along. Look at the words. Are they expressing what's going on in your heart? If not, humbly bow before God. Say, God, I want to be able to sing that with truth and genuine a genuine heart that says, you know what, I really do want to love God. As you listen to the songs that have been proclaimed to God, ask God to soften your heart. What does Colossians 3, 15 through 16 say? Listen very carefully. Let the peace that comes from Jesus Christ rule in your hearts. Let me hear you say peace. One more time, peace. Let the Peace of Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you were called to live in peace. And always be thankful. Let the message about Christ and all of its richness fill your lives. Teach, counsel each other with the wisdom that He gives. Then listen to what He says as he concludes this sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. Let me hear you say thankful hearts. We need to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts as one body, as we worship Him. As we have thankful hearts, we sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs to God and God alone. God, come in here right now. I mean, okay, I don't know the song, so I'm, if I don't know the song, God, I'm just going to at least Listen. I'm going to listen to the musicians. I'm going to listen to the rest of the church as they sing this song to you. Soften my heart. Make me thankful. Let your peace rule me. May the richness of your spirit just indwell me right now. Music is a powerful thing, a way of worshiping God. And so in this moment, as Elisha has his musician singing and worshiping, God speaks to Elisha. Amazing thing to consider through this. King of Eli- uh, the king of Israel comes to Elisha and basically says, hey, I've got a need. I need a solution. Elisha points him towards God, who's the ultimate solution. Okay? Let's repeat this one more time. Say this after me. God is not my shortcut. God is my solution. Remember that. God's not our shortcut. God's our solution. The great needs often drive us to God. If you have a great need in your life and you're trying to figure out all the answers, you're you're going about the wrong way. The greater the need, the greater your drive should be to God. Then we have to do our part then in seeing God's miracle in our lives. See, we can't just ask for something and sit back. I had these kids up here and do this for a reason. You know, hey, I want you to catch the ball. All right, throw it to me. Okay, well, you're not using your arms. God gave you arms. Catch the ball. But I instructed Ben not to purposely, same with Eli, not to kick the ball. Because, see, what happens in our lives is a lot of times we go to God and say, hey, God, can you help me with something? God's like, yeah, this is what I need you to do. But we keep our hands behind our back, and we are not willing to reach out and do the work we need to do. Or we say, hey, God, can you help me with something? I really want to do this. God says, well, this is where I need you to go. But what do we do? We stay down on our knees. We never get up on our feet and walk and go the distance that God wants us to go. God's given us what we need. We have to do our part in seeing God's miracles in our lives. Let's read in verse 16, verse 16. And he said, this is what the Lord says. This is incredible. This dry valley, remember, they're in the wilderness. They're in the middle of nowhere, out in the desert. This dry valley will be filled with pools of water. You'll neither see wind nor rain, says the Lord, but this valley will be filled with water. You'll have plenty for yourselves, for your cattle, for your other animals. But there's only a simple thing for the Lord. This is just a simple thing for the Lord. For he'll make you victorious over the army of Moab, which is a greater thing. They didn't even ask about that. You'll conquer the best of their cities, even the fortified ones. You'll cut down their trees. You'll stop all their springs and ruin all their good land with stones. You'll see neither wind nor rain, but you'll see the land filled with water. I mean, that's a strange promise from God, wasn't it? I mean, water's going to be provided. There's nothing around. You're not going to hear the wind coming. You're not going to see the storm approaching. You're not going to see the rain falling. There's no apparent signs of a storm, but there's going to have so much water, pools of water. You'll have water to drink. Your animals will have water to drink. Verse 16 says in another translation, it says this, Make this valley full of ditches. Make this valley full of ditches. God promised to send water to the valley, but they had to dig the ditches to catch what God would provide. They had to dig the ditches before the water was apparent so they could benefit from it when it came. You see what's going on here? God says, you're coming to me now with your need. I'm going to help you, but this is what you're going to do. You're going to go dig ditches. Go dig. Get your shovels and go dig. Go dig. We're in the middle of a desert. And these three armies... Three armies, not three people, three armies bust out the shovels and start digging all kinds of ditches and valleys. When the kings returned from their visit to Elijah and told the commanders to their men, hey, uh, take all the soldiers and start digging ditches. Can you imagine what the soldiers heard? They have not had this for seven days. I'm so thirsty right now. <clears throat> Lips are dry, mouth dry, tongue's dry, everything's dry. You want me to go dig a ditch? Manual labor. You want me to go work in the heat and sweat? I don't have anything left to sweat. I have nothing. And You want me to go dig ditches? That's a strange request. Near dead men in the middle of the desert, not looking forward to that, I'm sure. But this demonstrates the principle that God wants us to prepare for the blessings that He wants to bring. If you're not preparing, do you think He's going to bring it? Oh, it's going to take work. And listening to Him, we're supposed to anticipate is working and get ready for it. Digging ditches was something that the people of God could do. God didn't ask them to do more than what they were able to do. Hey, guess what? I guess we got shovels and we got dirt, so let's dig. He didn't ask them to do something that they couldn't do. They could do that. That wasn't the first thing on their to-do list. But when God wants to prepare us for a blessing to bring, he's going to give us what we can really do. Let me ask you this. What can you do? What has God given you? Charles Spurgeon once said this. He goes, If we expect to obtain the Holy Spirit's blessing, we have to prepare for his reception. Does that make sense? You want God's Spirit to bless you? Are you prepared for that? Make this valley full of trenches, he said. That's an order which is given for the members of the church. Make ready for the Holy Ghost power. Be prepared to receive that which he's about to give. Each man his place, each woman in her sphere. Make the whole of this church full of trenches for the reception of the divine water floods. I bet that was a powerful sermon to hear Charles Spurgeon preach that one. He went on to say, Act not on the mere strength of what you have, but an expectation of what you've asked. You know, for us, capital campaign, this is what we're asking. Whew. So where do we start? Grab your shovels. You want to be blessed as a church? So what are you doing in faith? But there's only a simple thing for the Lord. That was just a simple thing for the Lord. Did you read that verse? Because he's going to be victory over the Moabs. Oh, we didn't get to the battle yet. We're just dealing with Water. King came to Elisha, inquiring about water. God said, I'll tell you what, I'll take care of your immediate need, but I'm going to give you more. I'm going to give you victory over the Moabites. See, many of us try to use God for sheer motivation and inspiration, but rarely progress to the point of actually putting into practice what God's called us to do. Oh, motivate me with your words, God. Give me some great devotional reading. Give me this, you know, and ooh, fire me up for today. Fire me up and we read our devotions, we read our books, we go to a sermon, we go to a worship service, we download a podcast, we get all fired up, and we walk around on spiritual cloud nine, all excited about God, and we don't do anything. We just talk. We stand there, holding the shovel with our foot on it, saying, oh, that's a great sermon. Oh, that's a great read. Oh, did you hear what John, you know, Schmo said over there? And hey, did you hear what that guy said? And oh, did you hear what she said? And oh, we went to Bible study, and oh, it was a good study. Hanging on to the shovel. Not even putting that shovel into the dirt. It's great motivation, right? But what are we going to do with that? What are we going to do with that? The kings came to Elijah looking for a miracle, and God gave them instructions. Time to do some soul searching here, okay? Are you willing, church, to play your part in a greater calling that God's called for your life? Are you ready to do that? Are you willing to dig ditches for God? Are you ready to start putting that shovel down in the soil of your life and saying, God, I can do this for you and actually do it? You know, we can only assume that everyone in that valley dug all night long and woke up in the morning, guess what? Everything was full of water. Wouldn't that have been a sight to see? First one out of the tent, you talk about polar bear swim. Oh, I bet they're diving and jumping all over, drinking it up, swimming. I, they probably had a blast. I don't know. doesn't say. It says, verse 20, let's read that. And sure enough, the next day, about that time when the morning sacrifice was offered, water, boom, suddenly appeared, flowing from the direction of Edom. And soon there was water everywhere. Meanwhile, when the people of Moab heard about the armies marching against them, they mobilized every man they could fight, young, old, stationed along the border. But when they got up the next morning, the sun was shining across that very water, making it look as red as blood. It's blood, they cried, the Moabites exclaimed. The three armies must have attacked each other and killed each other. Let's go and collect the plunder. So now they're looking across and seeing this water. So it was life to these three armies. It was life. And on the other side of the waters was the Moabites, and they're saying, it's death. See when people who are not a part of the church look at what we do, they look at us strange and say, "That is crazy what you're doing." We're looking at it from the other side. This is awesome what God's doing. In the end, in the end, the Moabites were defeated. Repeat after me: God is not my shortcut. God is my solution. Let me ask you this: Are we doing our part in seeing God's miracle in our lives? What ditches is God calling you to dig? And are you available? Are you ready to dig? I know a lot of you are serving in multiple ways, and that's awesome. We're all able. We're all able. Last week I said this. I don't have to fully understand to obey immediately. God uses those most who hold on to the least. This week I'm saying God's not our shortcut. He's our solution. And we have to do our part in seeing God's miracle in our lives. Now, as we wrap up the service say I want to tell you the vote. Okay, the vote was 79%. Okay. Now, where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? Well, part of me would say if you voted no, I'd love for you to come talk to Dan and I and just honestly tell me why you voted no so we know what to avoid the next time or what your fears were or why you voted no. Okay. That would be the first thing I'd think of saying. And I'll I'll say this, am I disappointed? Yeah. As the pastor of your church, yeah, I'm disappointed. Uh, I know Tom Murphy said, hey, when the vote's given, make sure you celebrate, good or bad, and we will celebrate. But I'll tell you my initial feelings because I'm always transparent with you. You know that. I'll tell you where my heart is. I wear it on my sleeve most of the time. I'm disappointed. I'd be lying if I said I didn't because, you see, I'm like a coach after a ball game. For all of you who have ever coached, okay? Your heart's desire is to be victorious in all that you do, right? You want to win that game. What happens when you lose? Well, it's not the end of the day or end of your life, right? It's a loss. Loss hurts. Loss is disappointment. So I stand before you like a coach and says this, I'm disappointed. Um, It was a loss on the scoreboard this morning. Now we'll call that the ballot, okay? But But it wasn't an overall loss, okay? I once heard John Maxwell say this. Sometimes you win and sometimes you learn. So we learn, okay? We don't give up. I shared this with you last week. I'm going to repeat it again because here's the deal. By voting no, are we done? Did we lose? No. What did I say last week? Let's talk about evangelism. How many of us have gained courage in sharing our faith over the past few months. You're stronger and bolder in sharing with people. You've, you've handed out some of those books. You've handed out tracts to people. Your faith is stronger now than it ever has been before in evangelism. When it comes to discipleship, you've connected with people in this church that you've not connected with in a while. You're reading more. You're praying more. You're holding each other accountable. And giving sacrificially, we, we've, we're learning to open up our hands more and say, God, it's yours. And Involvement in the campaign, as I said last week, so many of you are involved in this campaign. It is awesome. You weren't doing that before. And now you are. You're serving. Some of you are involved in GPS. You were not involved in GPS and serving before. Now you are. So are we doing more? Absolutely. Okay, the votes, no. Did we lose anything? No, you know, we've gained everything. We're serving more. We're witnessing more. We're praying more. We're giving more. And we're going to continue to do that. And as your pastor, I'll continue to stand before you and say, let's keep going. Let's keep going. We're gaining. And I can think of a lot more worse things than a no vote. Just think of a neighbor, a friend, a family member who does not know Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's worse than a no vote. Eternity in hell is worse than a no vote. And as far as I know, the Lord hasn't called us back, because when he did, this room should be empty, right? So while we're still here, we have a job to do to reach people for Christ. So where do we go from here? Obviously, okay, not the building. But we move forward. And I want to encourage you to continue to move forward, okay? I'm going to ask this from you. I'm going to ask commitment from you. Whether you voted yes or no, I'm going to ask you to commit to the direction of this church. This past Monday, I drove over to Indiana to be with my mom and dad uh, during my dad's uh, appointment. He had another appointment. Um, We got some bad news, and the doctor said, why don't you come in, and we need to have a little consultation. So it's like they knew they were preparing for bad news, so I decided I'd drive over and be with them. And So I sat in the, uh, the the cancer unit with my mom and dad, and the doctor came in and said, you've got colon cancer. And so, here we go again. Is it from his prostate cancer that's come over to his colon or is it something new? So, he'll do a few more tests and then take the next procedure to get rid of that cancer in his colon. And of course, the doctor looks at me and says, you're his son? I say, yep. He goes, you're at risk. And I said, I know. And then, because uh, my grandmother passed away from colon cancer. And my brother's got colon cancer. And so, the doctor goes, oh, you are high risk. And it's like. Thank you. Okay. Uh, thanks for that good news. Um, I think I already knew that one, but it was frustrating. But you know, my mom and dad didn't know what, the, what they were going to hear that morning. How aggressive is this? Is this the end? What's so forth and so on. The news they heard was bad, but it wasn't as bad as what they thought it was going to be. So we went and sat down at Bob Evans afterward and had time together with mom and dad. And um, But then they went on to share with me that somebody that's close to me uh, that lives out of state here um, They'd just been married two years. And uh, my mom and dad shared with me that they're separating and divorcing. I think that hurt more than a cancer. It, cancer is uncontrollable. You get it, you get it. I mean, it's not like you can choose cancer or not. But marriage, you get to choose. Marriage, you get to commit to. And I, I think what frustrated me the most was that I remember two years ago husband and wife in front of me. Do you? Yes. Do you? Yes. Before God, before me, they said I do. They committed to each other and two years later, they're already going the opposite way. That frustrated me. That lack of commitment sort of made me mad. I know life is tough, but you don't walk away, okay? And I'm amazed that, that what seems to be commitment was really convenience. And when things are going right and steadfast, man, you're committed, right? But when things go bad, you bail out. And my fear is that when a church says, hey, things aren't going as good as I thought, I'm going to bail. I'm going to say this. Oh, so this was convenience? Or is this commitment? If you're committed to Christ, through good or bad, you stick around and you do what God's asked you to do and dig in digging ditches, serving people, whatever it may be. In 1519, Hernan Cortes sailed from Cuba to Mexico. When he went there, he was seeking a land of fame and fortune and riches. And he came to the shores with 11 ships, 100 sailors, and I believe 500 soldiers. And he got to the new land, and they started to settle in. And you know what? It wasn't going so good. People got sick. This wasn't as beautiful as I thought. All of a sudden, there's a lot of talk going along amongst the sailors. A little mutiny. We're going to sail back to where we were. So what did Hernan do? He went out to the shores, burned all 11 ships. Burned the ships. Guess what? We're here to stay. We're committing to this. Thick or thin, good or bad, we will stay here. He burned the ships. What did we say last week? Burn the plow, kill the cow. You know, going back. There ain't no going back. This is commitment. And I think about that in athletics. You want to be victorious? You go full. You give it all. You don't go half-hearted in practice and competition. When I walk up to practices, I shouldn't be able to tell who's a starter and who's on the bench because the effort is just as strong as this person to that person. In marriage, if you want a great relationship, you can't be half-hearted in your commitment to one another. You can't say, well, I sort of love you. No, I love you and I'm committed to that in your job if you want to be profit in your business you can't be half-hearted about projects you show up in time you do not what you want but what is right for the business you're committed to that in school you want A's you study you w- learn you work you don't go into school saying why well, if I get a C I'm okay with that no you're not okay with that if you make a commitment to a team to a person to God to the church then you stick with your commitment you don't do this out of convenience Colossians 3.23 says and whatever you do do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men this isn't about us This isn't about us. So in this church, I pray this. In light of whatever the vote is, which we now know, that we stay committed. Committed to Jesus Christ. Committed to loving God. Committed to loving others. Committed to continue to study and read and pray and worship like we never have before. Worship team, would you come forward, please? Well, they're coming forward, I, I know I've shared this story before. I know I have. And uh, matter of fact, I've shared it in a few wedding ceremonies. And it's, um, it took place a few years ago. It was an earthquake. Oh, it happened in Turkey. Severe earthquake. And I love this story, okay? Because it's a relentless love of God for us. Earthquake basically leveled. The spot in, uh, in Turkey. Among the thousands of casualties was a six-year-old boy named Armand. And Armand was at school when the earthquake came and hit and leveled the school. Armand's father was off in another town and when it, when it hit, he knew right away where to go. He, he ran as quick as he could to get to the school where his son was. He got to the school and he saw this pile of rubble. And he went up on the pile of rubble and he started grabbing bricks and taking them and hauling them down. And just kept working at it, grabbing those bricks and taking them down. And people would come by and say, it's, it's, it's hopeless. Why are you doing that? I mean, didn't you see? It's falling. It's down. And Armand's father kept working at it, grabbing the bricks, pulling them down. And he kept doing it. People kept coming up to him and sort of discouraging him. And finally he stopped and looked at him and said, join me or leave me alone. Join me or leave me alone. He went back to picking up those bricks one by one, one by one. 47 hours later, from underneath the pile of rubble as he was picking them up, he heard a voice. Daddy, is that you? It was was Armand. A little six-year-old crying out. His father exploded with joy as his son along with his classmates that were under the rubble were rescued. And he said to his classmates, I told you my daddy would get me. I told you my daddy would get me. See, that's the relentless love of a father. He calls out the same to us. And that's my call to you this morning. Join me or leave me alone. We will move forward in this church regardless of the vote. We will continue to worship God. We will love Him with all of our hearts, soul, mind, and strength and love one another as ourselves with the love of Christ. Amen? God is good. We move forward. We will do that as a church body would you please stand? Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I want to thank you, Lord, for your scripture. Before the vote was ever taken, you put words onto a piece of paper for me. You gave me scripture to study, to put direction in our hearts, we came here this morning, Lord, to worship you, to make some decisions on paper. Well, that decision's been made, so now we move on. Now we make decisions in our heart, Lord. We cast a vote in our heart. Do I remain committed to you and move forward, or is this just a matter of convenience what I was hoping to get out of? Lord, we will remain committed to you. We will join you in your work, in your ministry, in this community and the surrounding communities. There are people that are dying and separated from you. We need to reach them. There are people in this room right now that are hurting in their marriages, in their finances, and they need you. So Lord, as a church body, we surrender our brokenness to you and ask you to fix us. And in our strength, we come to you with our shovels and say, where do you want us to dig? Where do you want us to dig, God? We're going to trust you, God, in all things. And God, if not this building, then I guess, Lord, you've got something bigger for us. You've got something better for us. You've got something different for us. I can't wait to see what that is. Lord, I don't see it, but you already know it. So, Lord, I pray that right now you just give us hope. Give us peace. Lord, give us hope as we move forward knowing that you've got something else. You've got something else for us. We're going to trust you, God. We're going to trust you. Thank you, God, for all that you're doing in our hearts, all you're doing in our lives. My precious name is,